tonight on Arena. Erin Monaghan and Gina Moxley on a new production of Danty Dan and Martin Turish on the Inishon Traditional Orchestra and Choir. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Well, if the freezing temperatures didn't let you know that it was the beginning of January, well, that weather forecast that we just got certainly confirms it. But now I want you to travel in your minds back to the early summer of 1970 in a small town about 10 miles from Cork City. Five teenagers are hanging around together like strays left to their own devices. In Gina Moxley's play, Dante Dan, Bear and Noel are going out. Bear's younger sister, Dolores, is palling a out with her spiky friend Cactus and Dan, the youngest of them all, is mostly sitting at the roadside taking note of the registration number of every car that passes him. Gina Moxley wrote Dante Dan in 1995 for Rough Magic, but the play is about to get a new outing thanks to actor and director Aaron Monaghan and his Live and Dread Theatre Company. I'm delighted to have both Gina and Aaron with me in studio this evening. Go, go back to 1995, <laughs> if you would, Gina, and the writing of this play, because I suppose then you were, in fact, going right back to 1970, were you? Yeah, it seemed quite a jump back. Um, I call it also geographical. Um, it was kind of set very close to where I lived, uh, a bridge. And as kids, we had absolutely nothing to do bar sit in the bridge and try and make stuff up. So that's where it was set. And uh, rashly, Rough Magic asked me to write a play. I'd been acting with them at the time and it did take me a good long time now to get it out, as it usually does. But I think actually it was 94 we did mm. it. Or maybe it was 95, who knows. Now you say autogeographical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how much of Gina Moxley's own story is in here and she does... T- uh, you'd have to look at it yourself and figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> but it's I- teenagers and mm. sex, Sean. Teenagers and sex, I suppose. We all went through it. (laughs) A lot of people did, I'm told. Erin, was it teenagers and sex and perhaps one's own experiences that attracted you to the play or what was it? Not at all. It was the title, actually. I remember um, remember hearing the name of this play and reading it in bits. There was a a bookshop I used to go in and I used to read it bits at a time. Gina's amazing at writing the the the, the you patient glory. Well, I didn't. I'm from Cavan. <laughs> Absolutely not. I'm not going to give you the price of that. No, but um, uh, two pays and snare drums was the other one as well. But uh, no, I read it properly then about ten years ago, and I just thought it was the funniest, most vicious play I'd ever mm. I'd ever read, and I I you know just relished the chance to go back and do it and the fact that it's about teenagers and sex um, and that it requires sort of you know young actors to play it um, I was always drawn to it so when the opportunity came up to do it and Gina said absolutely we can have it God I, I was thrilled mm. yeah I mean it's just lovely for a play that that's old as that one to get another outing and to see it before an audience and realise yeah it there are bits of it might seem dated, but the same concerns continue. Yeah. Did did you revisit it in any way in that respect, or did you say no? What what I wrote back in in the nineteen nineties stays for this production as well. It stayed the same. Um, I would have been open to it, but I don't think it came up. Mm. It was grandest to us. <laughs> 
you'd done all your thinking <laughs> through it thinking. In, in, in the 1990s. Now, you've said that it's about uh, teenagers and sex. It certainly is about that. Let's listen to a clip which will give a real flavour of just that. Um, you might set this up for us, uh, if you would, Aaron. Yeah, so um, so Burr, the oldest of them, is, is on her break and the the two younger girls uh, take the opportunity to, they're just trying to learn as much as they can about sex and they feel that Burr has all the knowledge and she may or may not do as the club uh, All right, and they are going to get a lot of knowledge, uh, <laughs> a lot of colourful knowledge in the midst of this clip, so be warned of that before, <laughs> before we listen to it. And we're going to hear Maeve Maxwell as Bear, Chloe O'Reilly as Dolores and Venetia Bow as Cactus. Are you going swimming? No, she has her friend. I'm usually on the same time as you, aren't I? I thought I was getting it yesterday, but no, my chest is killing me. Ah, oh, shag it anyway, I'll probably get it on Friday and I wanted to wear the white pants going out. Why can't ya? You can see the shape of the ST. Use tampons. Tampons, isn't it? Ah, oh, man, would kill me if she caught me with tampax. Why? Because you're not a virgin anymore after them or something like that. She are not anyway, are you? You gone all the way. Listen, girl, this is the kind of place that if you lost your virginity, someone would find it and bring it home to your mother. Come on, walk along. I'm dead late already. I'll be slaughtered. Have you gone all the way or not? Ah, Jesus, keep your hair on. Well, I sort of have, not lying down like, only standing. What did you do if you get preggers? Ah, shut up, you. I'm far too young for that. Anyway, it was only standing. Go on, anyway. About what? What it's like. What does he do? Jesus, I don't know. I wasn't looking. Has your eyes closed? Yeah, when you're weak for someone, you sort of go... Do you have to close your eyes, though? No, you don't have to, but this is like a what do you call it? A court case, for fuck's sake. Does he have his eyes closed? Couldn't have. Or else how would he know where you were? Flip's sake, you could get your nose broken that way. <laughs> there we go. Um, Maeve Maxwell, Chloe O'Reilly and Venetia Bow in a scene there from Dante Dan and the current production of Gina Moxley's play from Live and Dread Theatre Company. Uh, uh, Aaron Monaghan who's directing the production of Gina Moxley who wrote the play obviously uh, with me in studio this evening I saw you mouthing the words there literally as we were going along <laughs> Aaron I love it so much <laughs> it's, it's he's some of the taken best. the advice to heart I think <laughs> yeah. no I mean you're not going to get better language than that though are you and uh, yeah, they're, they're amazing in what they do the, those performers the energy coming off them so it's infectious yeah I, and uh, Obviously, the, the Cork Patois, if I'm allowed to use that word yeah. in and around the Cork accent, <laughs> is, is very present here, Gina. Yeah, and it's great that a couple of the performers are Corkies, so it keeps us on track nicely. Um, and we're going to Cork with it, which is great as part of the tour. So I'm dying to go back down there and mm. see how that goes. The last time we did it in Cork, there were 40 women from Bandon walked out because uh, one of the characters was giving Noel a hand shandy. So the ladies from Bandon didn't enjoy that bit. So Three. I'd say they'd be better able for it now, though. <laughs> All right, so 40 angry, lady, uh, 40 angry <laughs> ladies from Bandon on that particular night. That was back in, in the 1990s. I'm just looking. I did buy the book back in the 1990s, uh, actually, <laughs> Iron. It was part of a, a selection of plays introduced, selected and introduced by Frank McGuinness, published by Faber at the time, called The Dazzling Dark. And um, I'm looking at the original cast, Don Bradfield, Sophie Flannery and Eileen Walsh as the three women that we just yeah. heard there. Uh, Donald Beecher as Noel and Alan King as as Dan. When you, that Those performances must have been etched in your mind for so long. Totally. Uh, and how quickly when you saw or have you seen, you presume you've been in the rehearsals. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have, have you already reimagined the characters? Oh, absolutely. 
it's amazing. They've just completely embodied them anew. Um, they're brilliant. They're bold. They're cheeky. They're they're a yeah, real gang. As they're well, a real they? gang. Mm. Like you really think that they've lived together on that boring old bridge forever. Yeah, and, and which is what you what which, which is really there. That sense of what I remember from the play is that sense of this little <sighs> group of. Of teenagers who yeah, really just, just it, their whole world was the bridge. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, except try and figure out what might happen to you if you met a fella somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Dante Dan, seeing as it, that was one of the things, isn't it in fact the, the opening, is it the very opening line of the yeah. play? It is indeed, yeah. yeah. Um, you might explain well, Dante Dan. It's a boy who's uh, 14, who has a f- mental functioning age of about and uh, he's obsessed with cowboys and the Wild West and he has an imaginary horse triggered that he ties up to this monument and he, um, I don't know what it would be now, ADHD or some Mm. spectrum type thing but um, we didn't have a name for it then and he just sits on the bridge and takes down the car numbers of every single car coming Mm to and fro from town. I mean, in fairness, there's little else to be doing. So he is the kind of linchpin of the whole thing. And it's about his innocence, really. Yeah, yeah. That's that's again what I remember from that mm. original production is the innocence. And there's a kind of a, a tragic innocence, I suppose, it in this is, character, isn't yeah, there? It is. But it's born of... Cactus's character's huge curiosity and she lives with her father. She has nobody to give her any advice. I mean, most girls didn't Mm. and indeed probably still don't. But uh, she sees an opportunity to kind of play on Dan's innocence. Yeah. Which does lead to tragedy. But yeah, has, not has. that that was a good laugh before. Oh, there's plenty. Well, I, we got. We, I think we get a sense of the, the kind of humour that is in there, but you do want a bit of a bit of drama in, in the process as well. You know how how important is the Cork setting to this? Would you say, Aaron? And in some ways, could it be any small town near any big city? I mean, yeah, it could be any small town, and like it's partly why we're bringing it on a rural tour. But I think. Cork, it's it's dripping in Cork. It's dri- dripping in Cork humour. It's 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 acerbic. It's cutting. Uh, I can't imagine. No, I can't imagine the play existing in a different dialect. Mm. For example, it would sound so much different. Uh, it'd be a completely different play. So, and it would that that's why as well. It was really important for us, for Gina to be very heavily involved, and it was very important for us as well to cast you know, at least two Cork actors as well. And as you can see from that clip as well, that they're 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 laying on the Cork accent fast and heavy. <laughs> it's it's every word of it is Cork, every every intention, every line of it is dripping in Cork. Yeah. Was there something specific to the summer of nineteen seventy? Uh, the summer setting is vital to it because you wouldn't yeah. be sitting on the bridge on a yeah, night like tonight, let's not. face it. Um I think it was really to do with the music. Um mm. music is a real driver of the action and the play. And when I was trying to pick when it might be, I was looking up all the, you know, top of the pops and all this, and there were just some classic hits. Then I thought, great, it's real sexy stuff. And like kids be listening to that, not having a clue, but What's like smooching to it or whatever. Mm. So that was really why... I settled on 1970. 
Yeah, and specific songs that that jumped well, out at you from the time. Make it with you, bread. That's I want to make that's my it favorite with you. One. And <laughs> even uh, down the dust pipe with status yep. quo, and even in the summertime. Summertime, uh, like that. Sets like they the were play very up, evocative. And, yeah, yeah. And I'm guessing that it was a voyage of discovery. I don't know if it, for you or not, Aaron, but certainly for Maeve Maxwell, Chloe O'Reilly, and Venetia <laughs> Bow, who obviously were not around in the 1970s or anything yeah. like that. I, I don't know if I've ever felt so old when, when, as directing this play. And and, and, and relieved at the same time that the youth are in, in very good hands. There's so many references um, to the play that went really over their head. And I mean that in a very mm. positive way that um, I made them do lots of research on 1970s and they kind of came back bristling with anger about the world that these people were living in, you know, the you know, the, the the stranglehold that the Catholic Church yeah. had in the country. And they were, I cannot believe that this thing happened, you know, like before they were born. So I'm, I was born a little bit after that. So I kind of had a sense of that, but they, they, it, it's nearly for the actors and they are quite young actors. It's nearly a period piece for them. They have to, they have to imagine an Ireland. So when we, we performed this play uh, a year and a half ago now and the young audience thought it was the most amazing thing in the world but and it was a mm. very it was a very different reaction for the older audience who had a very nostalgic um point of view on it so it's it's interesting to be doing it you know 25 years after it was first produced but also it's 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 50 years in the past now yeah so. it is quite a distance back when, yeah. you, when you look at it in those terms mm. Gina um, we needn't go any further down <laughs> that you. road uh, at all however what, what I do think is noteworthy and particularly given what what Aaron just said the absence of adults in the play, yeah. in fact. It, it, yeah. To what extent was it about you saying, you know, these children at the time would have been told to shut up and keep your mouth shut. Don't We don't need to hear you at all. Well, was it about giving voice to that in some ways? Well, it's, well, it was, you were sent out in June and you went <laughs> home in September. Like you were told, don't come back. You're not coming into the house. Come in for your tea and that's it. And like nobody was policing yeah. what you were doing. I think it was expected that the kind of um, the power would reach you even at the bridge but if you could be seen. But um, no, like we were all sent out and God knows what we got up to and you weren't even asked. Like, I don't think they even thought we could get up to any development. But clearly, Maybe did they know if, we, if we, <laughs> the play has anything to do by the words Divment was got up to? Well, we heard about it anyway. <laughs> okay. Well, listen. I'm sure. I'm sure the production uh, will will do very well. It opens at the town hall uh, in Cavan. Uh, on the 24th and the 25th. Big rural tour, as Erin mentioned to us, Roscommon Arts Centre, Hawkswell and Sligo. The Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, more about that in a minute. Mullingar Arts Centre, Everyman Theatre, Cork. Drehid Arts Centre, Riverbank Arts Centre, on Grain on Letter, Kenny, Backstage and Uncle. I'm sure I've left somebody out and they'll give out to you about that, Erin. But all of the details uh, uh, can be found on livingdread.ie because there's a lot of dates to take in there. Um, what I did mention, thanks to both Erin uh, and Gina for coming in to us this evening. Thank you. I did mention, I'll mention more, uh, to talk more about the Pavilion Theatre and that is because I want to tell you about a very special public event that we are involved in ourselves. Best-selling author of Days Without End, The Secret Scripture and The Stu- 
Stewart of Christendom and one of our most soulful living writers, it could be said, Sebastian Barry, has written a new novel. It's called Old God's Time. Arena are going to host a public interview with Sebastian to mark the publication of Old God's Time at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunlera. And that is on Tuesday, the 21st of February. It will be a live hour-long show and if you would like to attend please contact paviliontheatre.ie Public interview with writer Sebastian Barry on Tuesday the February the 21st. Now you might remember just before Christmas on Arena we were joined by Catherine Hunker, leader of the Irish Chamber Orchestra. She was speaking to us about the 300th anniversary of Vivaldi's Four Seasons and to celebrate that anniversary the ICO, the Irish Chamber Orchestra will perform uh, both Vivaldi's Four Seasons and the Four Seasons by Astor Piazzolla. That's happening this weekend in Galway as part of Music for Galway's Midwinter Festival. Another highlight of that festival takes place throughout this weekend coming. Uh, the festival does will be the visit of the world-renowned British pianist Freddie Kempf. He will be continuing the theme playing Tchaikovsky's The Seasons, the 12 short piano pieces inspired by each month of the year. That performance will take place this Saturday. January the 21st, 2023, uh, at 6pm in the Hardyman Hotel in Galway and also on the programme, the ever-popular Grand Polonaise, Brilliante, by Frédéric Chopin. Let's have a listen to Freddie Kemp then playing the Andante Spianato and the Grand Polonaise Brillante by Frédéric Chopin uh, in this recording. A little bit of a flavour of what Freddie Kemp is capable of on the piano. That is uh, Freddie Kemp there playing the music of Frederick Chopin. You can hear the Andante Spianato uh, and the Grand Polonaise Brillante in full, along with Tchaikovsky's 12 seasons, uh, 12, uh, seasons, the 12 piano pieces that make up that work, this Saturday, January the 21st at the Hardiman Hotel. He will be in Galway, Freddie Kemp, as part of the Midwinter Festival, brought to you by Music for Galway. The festival runs all weekend from this Friday, January the 20th, until Sunday. Lots on the programme. Um, Finning Collins, Soprano Lenica Reutin, the Irish Chamber Orchestra, as I mentioned, and lots more besides. Musicforgalway.ie for full details. Like any folk tradition, Irish traditional music has a long and fascinating history. The annals of traditional music provide inspiration for a new project brought to us by the Inishowen Traditional Orchestra and Choir in Donegal. They have gone back a thousand years to put together a programme of music which will be performed in the National Concert Hall on Saturday, January the 22nd. The 150-strong orchestra and choir will be introduced on the evening by Alton's Moraid Niwaini and they will be led by composer Mark. Martin Tourish, who's with me in studio right now. So how far have you gone back and how did you go back in history to find out about these this this programme that you've made, Martin? Uh, so we went back as far as we could, basically, uh, in, in this area of, the, of any shown. And uh, that brings you all the way back to Mail Issa and he died in uh, 1086. And uh, he was educated at the Monastery of Bo Connish, uh, just outside of Kildaf. 
And so all that remains uh, right now is uh, the two famous stands and stones at Caramore. Uh, but the music is still sung, Deus Mea Seduvame. And it's one of those things that brings you inside the mindset of the time. Uh, it, it's written in Latin and in Gaelic. And uh, his thing was he was rallying against uh, secularisation of the church. And there was too much wealth and too much money. And he was advocating a more personal mm. and pious uh, version of and when, and when you say the music is, is extant for that, that length of time, is it written down in some sort of way? Is it kind of like Gregorian chant? Is it that style of notation Not, or how is it there? You're talking pre-notation at that stage now. So the melody itself is harder to pin down mm. uh, because you just don't have the records. But it survived in the tradition some way. Maybe that's through the oral tradition. I can't ap- absolutely say. Mm. But the lyrics have survived because they were written down, of course. And, you know, it's one of about eight poems that we can attribute to me. Elisa of Rilkon, uh, from the time and it's one that we're delighted to have it's one of those just immensely powerful pieces of music when you hear it Now I've referred to the Inishon Traditional Music Project or I've referred to the Inishon Traditional Orchestra and Choir what are we talking about when we when we say a traditional orchestra, or is this a, what you have combined with the forces that are available to you? Well, it's a new phenomenon, really. I mean, they've only been going for maybe the past 10 years or mm. so. So it's something that's still, you know, being configured in whatever way it can be done uh, in, in with whatever resources are available. Uh, but in any show, I mean, we've managed to find a hundred of the finest uh, local musicians. So you've got fiddles and accordions, concertinas, pipes, harps. And uh, of course, then I've sort of added in some orchestral percussion and bass instruments. And then we had a, a fifth access to 50 piece choir. So you, can, you can't yeah. say no whenever you're offered one of those. <laughs> and in the case of the orchestra, what are you doing there? Do you do you it, it's not everybody playing in unison that you might no. get in a, in a session, in a traditional no. session. Are you providing harmonies? Are you, you know, splitting the violins into two parts, that type of thing? Yeah, the yeah, four parts at some points. Uh, yeah, the whole thing is scored. Uh, so it's quite an extensive score. It's 75 minutes in length, uh, which is a huge, huge undertaking. I mean, mm. like movement one, you know, Sibelius, the program you use to write this, you know, gives you a count of the notes, you know, 12,000 notes in the first movement. And that's only the first 10 minutes, you know. And uh, of course, then a lot of people in the traditional world, they don't read music or they don't come yeah. from that area. So, you know, they were sitting writing in the ABCs, the notes uh, underneath them all. Uh, and it's been one of those things. It's taken... You know, it's, it's, this has been in the works, I mean, obviously interrupted by COVID, but in the works for years. And but this community just comes together in Colgan Hall and Kuldaf uh, or in Carindona and yeah. just puts this amazing uh, sound together. Uh, I guess I guess I suppose the Inishon Peninsula in and of itself, uh, it's such a, a, a lovely little unit, if you like. It's, yeah. Is it easy to gather that community together? Um, how they done it, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> it's it's some undertaking to get that number of people together uh, for weekly rehearsals. Because mm. um, from one end of the peninsula to the other would be quite a distance. It's quite a stretch and yet people have committed to it and it was no easy under, undertaking. Mm. But I mean, it's a celebration of a millennium of the local music and the enthusiasm with which they all went at it. It's really one of those inspiring things. When you just when you hear the final result and everybody belting out with yeah. such joy, you know, the... The, the, some of the numbers and the anthem for Inishon. It's, uh, it's one of those experiences. Let's have a little bit of a listen to the Deus Meus that you, that you mentioned that goes Fantastic. back to that um, early period of time, back about yeah. a thousand years more or less yeah. is what we're talking about at, the, at this stage in, in time. It's a familiar tune to me at any rate, so let's mm-hmm. play it for a while first and then we can talk about it afterwards. Great, great. 
That's Deus Meus Ad Juvame, as sung by the Inishon Traditional Orchestra. Well, sung by the choir and played by the <laughs> Inishon Traditional Orchestra. And Martin Turish is with me ahead of the concert in the National Concert Hall on Sunday, January the 22nd. Just listening to that, the, 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 the tune is so haunting and I, I have some memory of singing it in a choir. So it possibly is, it was, would it have been handed down... I suppose, orally, first of all, and then notated somewhere along the line. Is that yeah, the that probability, would, Martin? Yeah, yeah, and still handed down orally as well. I mean, that's how most of the choir, even in the context of this project, would have learned it. Mm. It's one of those just eternal sounding melodies. So effectively what we get on the night, it's a five movement work. I suppose it's like a symphony, yeah. really, yeah. In, in some ways. It, and does Deus Meus, does that make up one of the movements or part of one of the movements? Part of the opening movement and we also introduce a theme then which becomes the anthem for Inishon. Uh, because of course we've got Glanton Glass Gidor yeah. uh, for Gidor, so we had to have one for Inishon as well. Uh, so it's this beautiful air by Denny McLaughlin called Carrie Keane and uh, then that reappears towards the end of the And concert. when you mentioned Dinny McLaughlin, like you're, you really are spanning the the eras here because <laughs> Dinny is a contemporary composer. Yeah, of course. So you're taking yeah. today's compo- compositions yeah. right up against the oldest you can find from the exactly. area. Exactly. So you've, you've got the most modern uh, towards the end of the concert, along with the, the oldest uh, mm. from the start. And then with another one of Dinny's tunes that you're going to hear in a, in a little bit, um, you've got uh, the, me- the melding of um, lyrics by uh, Cormac and Eigish, who was uh, the chief poet of Ireland. Uh, he wrote this poem um, about King, uh, or pr- the Prince of Aileach, Murtagh MacNeil's journey around Ireland. So written in 942. And uh, it tells this tale of, you know, exploits and we cast our cloaks of saffron hue. We were the night and we danced mm. and we sang and we a great time. I'm sure they were they weren't all saints, but <laughs> yes, yes, it was. <laughs> Casting their cloaks might be a metaphor, a metaphor for something else. There, I suppose, potentially. Well, the saffron's the colour of royalty, anyhow. We, we know that much. Uh, but uh, so you've got the yeah, exactly the, this melding together of this continuous mm. tradition. Uh, over such a span of time. And how does it, I mean, it, it, as you say, like it's a phenomenal group of people to, to be bringing together on a, on a regular basis. How does, what's the division of labour? Are you, you're doing all of the conducting here, uh, some of, some composing, I suppose, of some of the themes and yeah. most of the uh, orchestration and arranging? Yeah, so all of the, so I selected all of the pieces from what was made available to me and mm. some of my own research as well. Um, done, done the arrangement, produced the score. And I'll be conducting on the night. But as for all the hard work, uh, that's the Enishon Traditional Music Project. Uh, Roisin McGrory, uh, Neil McGrory, Clodagh Warnock, uh, they're doing all the heavy lifting. And Lorna McLaughlin as well. Lorna, course, Lorna, is Lorna is in charge of the choir. Is she it? is, yeah. You know her from the, from Henry, the Henry Girls. Girls. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. Uh, but uh, yeah, they're, they're really doing all the heavy lifting all of the time. And of course, then I step in. Towards the end. <laughs> and this has been done up in Inishon and I presume yeah. it went down a storm oh up there. Oh my God, it was just, yeah. We'd when was two, that? It was back Martin? in April with two nights in the Gateway Hotel uh, mm. sold out, you know. So it was the biggest venue we could get in Inishon uh, because, of course, it was important to play it there first. Uh, so two nights of um, the capacity of 400 uh, a night, but it just absolutely tore the house down. Mm-hmm. And it was just it was just one of those really special things. And of course, then you're when you play the music in the place where it's actually from, you know, and the yeah. places that are mentioned in the pieces of music and in the songs, they're just over the road. And it's you probably drove through them on the way there to the yes, concert. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those just magic. And I suppose things. that that kind of mention when something is so local like that, it takes on a whole new resonance, particularly yeah. for the people performing and singing. Yeah. You, you, I should ask you a little bit about uh, 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 is it 
Honoria Galway. Honoria. Honoria. Honoria <laughs> Galway. Honoria Galway. Yeah, Honoria Galway is one of those... I mean, people have only just recently rediscovered her, including myself. Mm. Um, she's largely forgotten uh, as a collector. She was born in 1830 uh, and spent the first 20 years of her life or so in Moville and in Ishon. And really what she does is uh, she collects the music um, or what was left of it uh, after the famine. Uh, in, in, in his show and she collects information about who the different performers performers mm. were and uh, and gives us this window into the musical and cultural world of Enishon in the 19th century which and of course we lived, would know absolutely nothing else about it yeah, she lived through until 1934 so she was 104 well 103 or 104 when she 1925, died 1925 uh, oh, actually yeah uh, right. 1925 uh, January mm. uh, but she was um, she was really exceptional um, every one of the pieces you can, you can find this collection by the way on the Irish Traditional Music Archive website um, but every one of the pieces was just incredible it's one of the songs for I Have a Spirit Above My Degree and it's, I mean, it's it's a feminist anthem long, long before her time. I mean, mm. she talks about the circumstances that, are, that, 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 that life has dealt her or her social sta- status in life um, and how she's not, the, the character in the song isn't allowed to marry the one they want. Yeah. Um, but she def- it's a song of resilience and defiance uh, where you never get that perspective. And does she the, claim, in the, in the songs. does she claim the derriere uh, may have as much got to do with Donegal as it has to do with Derry? She did. Well, she was a supporter. <laughs> <laughs> right. And of course, I mean, you know, it's difficult to find evidence the further back in time you go and when you're back at the time of Bunton it's even harder but um, but you know all when all's said and done you know she's she's managed to sort of give us this window into into mm. a cultural world and material that you know tunes and songs that n- nobody uh, knew I mean like I mean, this, there's a tune called The Blackbird it's on a par with the Coolin I mean has completely had been completely forgotten so it's this opportunity to bring it back and to have the locals playing this incredible music again so that's just such a Thrill. Uh, I, I often wonder when a, a conductor is conducting the orchestra and he or she, you know, has um, played an instrument previous to that, be it the violin or the flute yeah. or one of the woodwinds, you think, yeah. did they favour that section of the orchestra? What about Martin Turish now, accordion player? Is he well, constantly giving them a little bit extra to do? Well, oh yeah, they've got a hard, they've got a hard job. Uh, but uh, it's it's one of the funny things because trad orchestras are a new thing, and most mm. of the instruments are are in the treble range. So you're really very often you're missing the bass, that big bass sound. You know, there's no double basses, cello, yeah. uh, nothing like that. No brass uh, for for that oomph, uh, but the piano accordions when they're mic'd up, they they have those low notes, so yes. you can really make the most of it. And then they can compensate on the right hand uh, for a lot of the harmony work. So yeah, so they ended up, they end up doing an awful lot of that, you know, to get the real big sound. So you know, they're not playing tunes as much as they would like to, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, but they're they're really they, they they climbed Mount Everest and learned that score. I can tell you that. Uh, I'm not surprised that you, <laughs> as an accordion player, would have given them a bit of extra work to do. We're going to finish up then with uh, listening to some of We Are the Night. Just uh, tell us again how this fits into the overall piece if you want. Uh, so this is in the movement uh, concerning Denny McLaughlin yeah. and you know when Denny started uh, he learned the fiddle from uh, a, a local Pat, Pat Mulhern a local fiddle player and he was practically the only one playing and single handedly at the time at least he revived the music of the whole area to the point now where you can have a 150 piece orchestra and choir performing the music to such a high standard and mm. even that is a fraction of the musicians that they have in the area and so this is also melded in with some of his own lyrics about what it was like growing up where nobody played 
coming to the point now where so many celebrated players have come through his guidance and uh, where we, we are where we are thanks to him. So. Yeah. And, and and we are the night. Is that still, is that a reference back to that royalty that yeah, you were that's, talking that's about Cormac, earlier on? Cormac and Igish. And right. very fitting for Denny McLaughlin to be in the company. Of, of, of royalty. Of royalty. Yeah, Donegal royalty. <laughs> is there any other kinds of we'll, we'll finish up then with We Are The Night from the Inishowen Traditional Orchestra and Choir. Martin, thanks for coming in to us and best thanks luck with the concert. Thanks. And there of the Inish on traditional orchestra and choir, Martin Turish, um, telling us all about that beforehand. Martin will conduct the Inish on trad orchestra and choir in a concert entitled Inish on, a celebration of the traditional music and song of Inish on County Donegal. The choir will be conducted by Lorna McLaughlin on the night. That's Lorna McLaughlin of the Henry Girls, as Martin told us. The evening of music will be introduced by Maureen Niwaney of Alton. You can find out full details about that uh, concert on Sunday the January the 22nd at the National Concert Hall on the website nch.ie The Italian superstar film actress and photojournalist Gina Lollabrigida has died. She was 95. Lollabrigida was perhaps best known for her cinema work of the 1950s and 60s in films like Solomon and Sheba, Beat the Devil and Buonasera, Mrs Campbell. She was considered one of the great beauties of her time, born and raised in Subiaco, east of Rome. She started out in modelling, coming third in Miss Italia in 1947. She wrote on her entry form for that competition that she felt she had a talent for acting. And indeed, she soon pursued it with roles in European films, including Bread, Love and Dreams, for which she won a BAFTA. Her most successful films came in the mid to late 1950s with the release of titles like The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Solomon and Sheba and Beautiful But Dangerous. Lola Brigida was an accomplished photographer publishing several collections in her lifetime. She also got an exclusive interview with Fidel Castro in 1974. In 1999, she ran unsuccessfully for the European Parliament with Romano Prodi's Democratic Party. Let's have a listen to Gina in action. First at the age of 22, singing in the Italian film Vita De Cani, followed by a clip from the film Buonasera, Mrs. Campbell, the 1968 film, in fact, which many believed was the inspiration for Mamma Mia. Il mio muchacho una fattoria nell'Equador, con 450 lacche e mille porre, agli occhi storti di un naso lungo quattro dita, ma il mio pedrito vale un tesoro. Thank you, Jane Rubarai. I cannot accept this plaque. Wait, Mama, wait. You see, none of these people knew Eddie Campbell, but if they had, they'd have known he was very handsome. Warm and loving. He was a good family man. But most of all, he was modest. And if Eddie Campbell were here today, he would say, let the memorial be named for the people of San Forino. And for that, there's only one person to accept the plaque. If you would be kind enough, Contessa. Grazie. 
Mrs. Gumble. And thank you, General, for thinking of me. there of Gina Lola Brigida in Buonasera, Mrs. Campbell and before that we heard her singing as well. Uh, The death of Gina Lola Brigida has been announced. She was 95. And just coming up to 13 minutes to 8 o'clock on Monday Night's Arena. The Scottish writer David Keenan, not to be confused with the Irish songwriter of the same name, spent 25 years as a music journalist before turning to his first love of fiction. He has published five novels, starting with his debut in 2017, which was called This Is Memorial Device. His most recent book, Industry of Magic and Light, was published last year and, like his debut, was also set in his hometown of Airdrie in Scotland. David Keenan will be appearing at the Hedge School in Doolin later this month, where we will have a workshop that looks at various divinatory supernatural methods. I'm going to find out all about that from David Keenan, who joins me now from Scotland. Not in Airdrie, I presume. You're not at, at, at home home, as we might say here, David, are you? No, not anymore. I'm in Glasgow, but I'm close by still. Yes, and and you're there in your heart, possibly, uh, as well. Um, But I want to bring you back to a connection, uh, to start out with a connection to Ireland, in fact, and Christmas cards that you used to receive from your father's family in Belfast, which I think it's fair to say probably had quite an effect on your own writing style, eventually, if that's not too big a statement. Well, in a way, they were sort of a sort of intuitive avant-garde and the, most of the members of the family on my dad's side couldn't really read or write, but they would send you these cards which had the most beautiful approximations of language. They would literally guess at how syntax worked. They'd guess at how you used punctuation. They'd guess at spelling. And to me, it was like a form of beautiful poetry. I always remember my favourite one was I had a card and every single word had a comma after it. And it said, always remember you are an very special person. It's beautiful. And, you know, if you put a comma in after each of those words, it becomes a wonderful statement. It really does. It becomes like a mantra. And my father would always say to me, it's important to read. It's important to read. Reading will change your life. And I would think, well, how would he know? But it occurred to me then that he had this incredible faith in the transformative powers of language. And I thought, well, you know, if my dad read most books, that probably wouldn't happen. Most books don't really transform your life. And so right then I sort of made a vow that I would write the sort of books that would live up to an illiterate Irishman's idea of what a book could do. And I suppose what we're talking about there, it, it really is the exploration of oral language is, is what you're looking at. Yes, definitely. And I think that especially this is something about Irish vernacular and Scottish vernacular. It's almost this absolute faith in language, this ability that if you tell a story perfectly, if you can tell it really well, then you can redeem even the suffering that was at the heart of it. You know, they would tell these stories and they would compete to tell it in the funniest way whatsoever about stories that were difficult, suffering, violence, terrible things happening. But somehow they believed that the telling of the story could redeem the various circumstances. And that's a big inspiration to me. 
And I guess it's part of our being Celtic cousins, but the, there would be a particular connection between the north of Ireland, really, and the northern part of Ireland and Scotland. There's very definite cultural, linguistic and music connections there. Yes, totally. I believe in that. And I think the power of the word, the belief in the story, I think that's the big thing, the belief in the redemptive power of language. And I think that comes through. Well, one of the big things I was interested in in my second book, which was called For the Good Things and was saying Belfast during the Troubles, is how language can, how, uh, um, how close like the Irish joke is to Irish modernism. They both sort of share so much in, in common, but the telling of the joke and the, and the joy in language is the same joy in language that animates Ulysses in a way. Yeah, and I was going to say, um, to, to what extent do you think Joyce gave birth to that? Or in fact, was Joyce just copying what you're, I, I think you might argue was already extant in the spoken language of this country? I think he sort of homed in on that. He telescoped in on the obsessive belief in language, on the endless retelling. It was almost a sort of Kabbalistic style to sort of Irish thing, which I think very much unites it with sort of Jewish culture also. And that they think the turning of the letters, the endless retelling of the stories will, will somehow result in epiphany, will somehow result in a sort of revelation. And I love that, the belief in the power of the word, word, the word to transform. And do you see a similar power or belief in the power of storytelling in Scotland? Yes, I do. I think that's exactly the same, that oral tradition, that love of language. For me as a writer, it's great to live in a place like Glasgow because, again, there's such joy in telling. One of my big advices for anyone who wants to write is take public transport and listen. The patter, that, that's the, the, the joy in patter in Glasgow is something that absolutely inspires me and inspires my books. And, and in fact, you, you often, this was why I, I started out by asking you, are you at home home in, in Airdrie, as in your, <laughs> your original hometown? Um, your breakthrough yeah. book, This Is Memorial Device, um, it's, This Is Memorial Device, I suppose is how we should say it, published in 2017, yeah. set in your hometown of Airdrie. Tell me a little bit about who or what memorial device is are well what it was all about it's set during the post-punk years and it's about a fictional band that start out in the and that transform everyone's lives that come into contact with it and also for me it was a love letter it was a love letter to small towns now i felt as if there was a sort of cliche in scottish fiction that would portray working class towns as places that you try to escape from as places that you suffered in the places where everyone was alcoholic or on drugs and places of misery and that was not my experience whatsoever i used to watch these incredible characters looking amazing treating the, the main street of Erdry like a cat walk and think wow there was so much magic going on at that time and so Memorial Device my first book was my fantasy of all the lives of these incredible artists whose lives were changed in working class towns by encounters with art by encounters with music and around about the time of post-punk so it was really a love letter to the possibilities of how art and music can transform even what are supposedly crappy little towns you know and and to a certain extent too David was it um, a kind of fantasy uh, for yourself of the punk rocker that you might have been had you not gone into music journalism <laughs> well it's funny because I'm the opposite in a way like they always say you know like the music journalist is the frustrated musician mm. but I was a musician and played in bands and I was a frustrated rock journalist because really <laughs> I wanted to write about it more than even jam it you know and did you want to write about it in, in the patois of, of Airdrie or indeed in the style of your cousins in Belfast that were sending you those wonderful Christmas cards with all the commas? 
Well, I thought they were rock and roll. I mean, they were like rock and roll lyrics, the way they were phrased. And and that, again, rock and roll, again, is about joy of language. It's about playing with words. And, and rock and roll lyrics don't always stand up as poetry, as written words, because they're, they're not really about that. They're somewhere between that oral tradition and that joy and just the feel of language in your very mouth. So that, to me, that oral tradition and that folk tradition, that is the early wrong roll tradition that inspired me. And what I wanted to do was I didn't want to write about rock and roll. When I was a music journalist, I never thought of myself as a critic. I wasn't there to dissemble or critique rock and roll. I was there to write pieces that had the rhythm, the feel and the excitement of the music itself. You know what I mean? Mm. And in your most recent book then, The Industry of Magic and Light, you're back in there. Yeah. Is, that, is that a prequel to This Is Memorial is. Device? Yeah. It is. I mean, I never saw that coming at all. I mean, I never plan my books. I never sit down with an idea. I start to write and I see kind of what manifests. And when I began writing this book, I was like, wow, I'm back in Eardry, only it's earlier. This book, Industry of Magic Light, is set in the late 1960s and early 1970s, so well before the punk years. But it does feature some of the characters. And it was beautiful for me because, you know, I'm not a puppet master. I can't bring my characters back by force. But it was so wonderful to realise I'd been gifted this whole other story and allowed to go back to Eardrey and mm. find out what happened or what had previously happened with some other characters. You, In the title of that book, obviously, Industry of Magic and Light, the word magic is there. You used ma- the word magic yourself a couple of times along the, the way um, when, you were, when you were speaking to me earlier on as well. What do you consider magic to be? It, you linked it in with the arts in some way when you were talking to me. Well, to me, I mean, straight up, art is magic. When people always say to me, well, I don't really believe in magic, that kind of seems like nonsense. I always want to turn on its head and say, well, do you believe in art? Do you believe in something that has no objective existence whatsoever in one sense? But when you commune with it, it transforms your experience of reality. So in a way, my approach to magic is completely non-supernatural. My approach to magic is like art. If you believe in art, you kind of believe in magic. And I always have a thing about you know, I designed my own tarot deck and I, and I use tarot cards as well. But again, I don't believe there's anything supernatural about them. In fact, I come more from, I'm inspired more by poetry than magic. The poet Charles Olson says, whatever happens of this moment has the character of this moment. In that case, when you turn over a tarot card, it has the character of the moment and you're reading it. And what you're reading is possibility, not anything predictive. So I think in a way, the most basic attribute of magic is paying attention close attention I think that's where you spot the magic and is there is there something in it connected in and around Erdry that has that magical quality for you <laughs> well yes in a way you know one of the things that inspired me to write was early on I discovered a book called The Book of Erdry it happened in the, sometime in the 1950s they did an entire history based around the experience of the people who lived there and this book was published and I was given it by my headmaster of my first primary school, the book of Beardry. And I remember thinking, one, wow, they can write a book about the place where I live. That was a big thing to me. <laughs> but secondly, they had a whole section called Supernatural Eardry, where they talked about ghosts. And I remember the biggest revelation was, wow, we even have our own ghosts. Magic is present on the very streets where I live. That was a revelation to me. And, and I it- realised magic is present on the streets where all of us live. So do you believe in ghosts? No, not at all. <laughs> but you do believe in magic. It's magic and it's the tarot cards, I think, David, that you're, that you're bringing to, uh, to Doolan, uh, to the Hedge School Festival in Doolan. Just explain what kind of things you'll be doing in and around these magic, these tarot cards, I beg your pardon. 
Well, um, I mean, I'm talking about my own experience of how mm. magic and, and being invo- involved in magic kind of changed me. One of the big things I want to do at the school is I think one of the things I've discovered is there's a different sort of brain when you write than there is a brain when you think. So one of my big things is, is about journaling, keeping a magical journal, because if you keep a magical journal, it encourages you to pay attention to everything that happens to you that day. And as I was mentioning early on, I think the very basic act of paying attention attunes you to the sort of miracle, the miracle of the moment, the miracle of what's happening even right now, you and I speaking. I mean, even the words that I'm speaking are not things that are pre-thought of. Mm. They, they arise and they disappear. There's magic every moment, but it's just a, a thing of like attuning your attention. So when I use a lot of exercises for attuning your attention, using poetry and literature and, and journaling and things like that. I guess you're, what you're talking about too here is really the magic of storytelling. Ultimately, yes. But uh, but one of the big things is it's not merely the story. It's that old Frank Carson thing. It's the way you tell it, you know. And it's the way you t- and it's the way you tell it to yourself as much as anything else. That's the key to magic, right there. I think. All right, and that is that is that the key to your writing uh, style and and writing process. Tell the story to that yourself is the way first. I tell it. Well, listen, thanks for telling it your way to us this evening, David. And <laughs> and hope you, so you enjoy much. your trip to, to Doolin when it comes around. That's David Keenan. Right, I can't wait. Thanks a million, David. David Keenan there. And David will be at the Hedge School in Doolin on January the 28th. That festival takes place from the 27th through to the 29th. Um, Katie Kim will be there. Malcolm McGann will be there. Stephen James Smith. And full details on Hedge hyphen school.ie and that is our lot for this Monday evening. Leah Murphy, Paula Shields and Amandine Passo-Devine were the receipt researchers. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator. Mark McGrath was on sound this evening and tonight's programme produced by Keshi. Back with you tomorrow night 7 o'clock once again here on RT Radio 1 and Fake No Brain On will be with you after the news.